1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Growing a Food Movement. This is Very Good Talk with Jessica Waite, and today I have Paul Grieve in the studio. Thank you to Specialty Produce again for allowing us to do this. Um, Paul is with Pasture Birds, and I would love to just get started with a little bit of an intro about what you do.
0: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Excited to be in here. I love Specialty Produce, too. Yeah, so we're in this regenerative poultry space, and it's a really exciting space right now. Basically, about seven years ago, my family got really bummed about all the factory farming options for chicken and lamb and beef and pork that were out there. And we got to the point where it was either completely stop eating meat or grow it ourselves because we started learning more about all the marketing labels and the scams that are going on in the grocery store and pretty disenchanted with the options that were out there. So. Basically, the story goes, seven years ago, we were joking around about getting chickens for the backyard. My brother-in-law, Rob, disappears for about five minutes, comes back, and he's like, Hey, I just ordered 50 chicks, and they're going to be here in two weeks. And we were like, I grew up in this city, zero farming experience, no idea what we're even talking about, you know? And uh, it all started there.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome. I have to admit we just did something similar. We just got four little chickens for the back of our house, and they're bantams, and they're— you know, my husband, who's a chef, is really excited about the the little mini eggs. Totally. and And I'm completely vegan, so I'm, of course, just looking at them like, pets! I love them! They're adorable and so much fun, but—
0: <laughs> And fertilizer for your garden. And fer-
1: exactly. That was a big—so um, there's so many things I want to ask you, because I've, I we were talking a little bit before about, you know, what regenerative means and what it means to start growing in a way that kind of— you know build soil health and do all these things that are kind of catchphrases now but i'm i want to kind of zero in on like what that farming system looks like but you started with these you know you said five right 50, how did that 50, 50 okay <laughs> sorry there. i was thinking yeah. about my four yep. um so 50 chickens and like how did that start to grow and how did you start to like systematize that or integrate that into like a farm
0: well we thought it would just be for our family so we have like mm-hmm. a pretty big family 25 people in the oh, immediate awesome. family and uh like I said, we were pretty bummed, and we didn't want to keep buying meat in the grocery store anymore. And so I thought we were just going to raise fifty birds, uh-huh. literally like harvest them in the backyard, uh-huh. and then put them in our freezer and have them for the year. You know, yeah. uh, as a serial entrepreneur, of course, I was like, "This is really expensive." As uh-huh. we got into it, to do it the right way was super yeah. expensive. And so Facebook was like popular back then, mm-hmm. and I put a couple posts up and just said, "Hey, friends and family, like if anybody wants some, um, you know, let me know, and we'll put a deposit down and." All fifty birds sold out within like two weeks, and so at that point we're like, okay, that was interesting. And then we harvested them, and then the next month we did a hundred, and the same thing happened, and then two hundred, and then five hundred, and then a thousand, and then pretty soon I was living at the beach in Newport Beach, and like mm-hmm. working a normal job as an accountant, and I was like, dude, I think this thing might actually be a business, you know? That's rad. So like, me and my wife just moved out. Uh, moved in with the Mm in-laws, like nine of us living in one house kind of thing and just grinded and got the business up and got it running.
1: Got it. And when you say doing it the right way is really expensive, like what does that mean to you and what did that mean to your family?
0: Yeah. So we really believe that like nature is smarter than science. Uh And we believe that people have gone totally on the industrial side. They've really focused on lowering the cost of production as their sole goal. Uh, They've really taken out, like, the idea of animal welfare or environment or nutrient density of food. And, like, we focused on this one goal, and we've gotten really, really good at it in the industry, which is making really cheap food. Um, Unfortunately, they slap labels on this stuff now, and they make people think that they're getting something that's better for the animal or better for the environment, and it's really not. It's really the same thing with a fancy label on it. So, to me, like, we talk about regenerative as really the gold standard of, of our objective, And that means to me that the the environment gets better every year Yeah. by using animals in the way that we use them or plants. Really, whatever you want to do, you can grow anything regeneratively. The environment should actually get better. The soil should get better every year. The air quality, the water quality, everything should actually improve year by year, which is in stark contrast to 99.99% of food production on the plant and animal side right now.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really something that's difficult for people to wrap their head around. At least it was for me. It's like you've got... A lot of kind of chatter, a lot of buzz about these different kinds of farming systems and and different ways to produce animals. If you are going to consume animals, and and what is the difference in a chick, like? Okay, so you ha- you get a chick. What does that life look like if it's on your farm compared yeah. to maybe a big factory farm?
0: Yeah, and what I always actually love, I'll, I'll answer that, but I love to go back and talk about why. We do what we do. And you talked about the difference of producing and consuming. And just because you're producing something doesn't mean you also have to consume it. But Uh if we go back 200 years or 500 years in the U.S., you see this dominant herbivore animal, which is the bison. Mm -hmm. And there was about 80 million bison in the U.S. 200 200 years ago. People – a lot of times we have this misconception that like there's too many cows in America now. Uh And I would personally actually disagree with that. I think it's just the way that we're managing which completely. is just completely jacked up. Because right now we have between 80 and 100 million cattle in our country too. So basically it's the same number of animals. But if you go back 200, 500, a million years, the way that these bison roamed, they would eat the grass. They would poop on the ground. And then they would move to the next spot. And that poop is the best fertilizer in the entire world. It's better than anything Monsanto or anybody (laughs) else can possibly come up with. Better than any chemical fertilizer, anything, you know. And it's this super regenerative process. And so when we design our poultry system, or we also run beef, cattle, and pork, and uh, everything we do, we try to model it after that system. So nature's system of eating grass, pooping on the ground, and then moving to the next spot which allows the grass to actually absorb the nutrition from that manure, manure and create better, healthier soil for the next year.
1: Completely, and I think um, I was visiting Apricot Lanes, which is popular because of the biggest little farm movie that came out recently. And the idea of biomimicry was brought up. Is exactly. that a term that you use in your farm? Is that totally. something? Yeah,
0: biomimicry absolutely. is purely the idea that like we're going to look at nature as the template and then try to model as close as we can to that. And uh, that's exactly what we do. So a chick on our farm, or chicken on our farm, basically. In a normal, conventional setting, you're going to have like a 600-foot-long barn, 40 feet wide, about 40,000, 30,000 birds inside of there. They're never moving. So, you know, they're walking on top of each other, pooping where they live. Um, It's a pretty brutal environment. You can Google, you know, chicken farming, and that's pretty much what's going to show up because that's what 99.9% of poultry production is right now, sadly. Yeah. There's a dude, though, out of Virginia called Joel Salatin, and he pioneered this method of like putting animals on pasture 24-7 and basically using a coop that moves them to a new spot of pasture every single day. And so that's sort of like this marriage between nature's process of eating, pooping, and moving with like a production process of being able to actually maintain animals and keep them healthy and away from predators and stuff like that. So our birds live in these floorless coops small floorless coops. They uh, graze all day long, every single day. They eat bugs and worms and grasses and seeds and all the stuff that they would have access to in nature. And then every single day, 365 days a year, our guys are out there pulling these coops to a fresh pasture. So that's getting them off their manure. It allows us to not need any antibiotics or drugs or anything like that. And then it gives us amazing flavor for chicken too um, because they're eating grasses and bugs and seeds and all
1: the things that they were meant to eat. Yeah. Yeah, And
0: they get a a feed ration too. So they also eat this corn and soybean ration, mm -hmm. but really what makes pasture bird different than, you know, everybody else is the birds are getting this really mixed, varied diet. They're up walking around a lot. Like, it's how you'd want to live if you were a chicken, <laughs> you know?
1: That sounds great. I, You know, and I'm trying to find a way to integrate some of these terms that I've been reading about a lot because, of course, I've, you know, read about Joel Salton. I've read about all these different kind of practices just reading Kiss the Ground and some of the other Omnivore's Dilemma and some of the other books that um, I really started to dig into um, so that that movement, that's that planned rotational grazing. Is that what they're, okay. So that's something we read about a lot. And I had the opportunity to go to Stone Barn Center too. when we were in New York last April and we were, we were walking when they were moving the sheep Mm. from one section to another. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because they actually just set up a whole nother set of fence. And then they had these big, beautiful dogs who just kind of bounded along with the sheep and the sheep just, most of them went right away. They weren't, you know, they just seemed to kind of be happy to move. And then We had a group of babies that were, you know, they were being bad little babies, and they were running all over the field, and it was adorable, but it was really cool to see that. And the idea, so when they're eating the grass, the purpose of moving them, you know, I've always kind of read about like, there's supposed to be an optimal amount of grass that's kind of getting eaten down sure. but not too much so yeah. it's not going to bare. so what's really the point of moving those animals
0: yeah and let me back up so <clears throat> my favorite time of the entire day on the, on the entire farm is that time of moving yeah because literally like you were there so you yeah. felt like there's a legit energy that comes from like the happiness and excitement yeah. of the animals when they're going to that fresh spot and in nature Predators would force them into these packs, Completely. right? And so it it is biomimicry to put mm-hmm. them in a pack and then move them constantly. We don't really want a ton of predator pressure. Mm-hmm. I'm not like trying to bring <laughs> wolves and you know lions onto my farm yeah. to threaten my livestock or yeah. something. But we're manually doing that for them, you know. But yeah, why move the animals? It's for us. It's really mostly it's about well, it's multiple thing. Animal welfare first and foremost. Mm-hmm chickens don't want to live on their own poop yeah. any more than you and I don't want to live in our own poop. There's Stake a reason we salt. flush our toilets, you know? <laughs> Teasing.
1: Like yeah.
0: uh, animals really thrive in their happiest when they're yeah. on fresh pasture. And Absolutely. you can literally see smiles on the chickens' faces when like you move that coop and all the fresh bugs and the new little insects and all the uh-huh. weird stuff comes up. Uh, so animal welfare is probably first and foremost. That's how animals want to live. That's biomimicry. Second is land management. So like I got into this really as an environmentalist and looking at it, really, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or, or a meat eater, animals can be used to heal soil, regardless of whether you eat them or not. Like, they're really, really beneficial in that way. There's now proven, uh, especially with cattle, this is really starting to come out, that you can in- improve soil, sequester carbon into the soil, mm-hmm. improve water holding capacity, improve air quality, all with the proper management of cattle. And again, whether we eat them or not, it's a whole other discussion, but um, the fact that you can improve environment using livestock is now fully scientifically proven, and I'm stoked on that. Like, that's really what fires me up every day.
1: That's something that I'm incredibly interested in, too, and the idea that they can sequester that amount of water um, by improving the soil system. So... This is something that I was kind of interested in the other day when I was at Apricot Lanes and they were talking about bringing the energy down in from the sun. Mm. And then a lot of that energy stays in the plants and then that's eaten by the animals. Yeah. But then a lot of it goes down into the soil and it sets off all these kind of enzymatic reactions. And you know, without going too deep into the science, when you say improve soil health, like what does that really mean to you? As a farmer,
0: yeah, so there's a lot of things that it means, and it's super technical, but basically, it grows more food the next year. That's what improved soil health means. There's more diversity in the field, it grows more plants, and it grows more forage. One way that that happens is, like you were just saying, water holding capacity. Mm I think it's an interesting... I nerd out on this stuff. Yeah, me too. I don't want to go so, too
1: deep and lose all of our followers like 10 minutes in. But As the
0: soil gets healthier, it holds more water. This year, we're going to capture like 15 million more gallons per rainstorm than mm-hmm. we did last year. Awesome. Because when the rain comes down now, instead of just running off into local streams and stuff, like it's staying on the on the farm where it belongs. And that's purely done through like we haven't added fertilizer, we haven't done chemical, like it's purely from the animals, you know? Mm-hmm. And imagine what that looks like over like, you know, completely... thousands of farms across the United States. Like imagine what that does for our air quality and water and everything else.
1: Absolutely. And like you said, the ability to sequester carbon. And then yeah. one thing, you know, another term I hear a lot of is kind of this desertification that happens in these big like monocrop um, farms. So that's not something you really have to worry about when you have this kind of more regenerative model, Right.
0: It's something we still think about. So yeah. that's one big difference of, of beef, regenerative mm-hmm. beef production, which is purely eating pasture, grasses, mm-hmm. compared to poultry production or pork, okay. where we're relying still on a corn and soybean. So that's one area I say we're far from perfect. Okay. We've got a lot of room still to grow. We still use, you know, industrially grown corn and soybeans. Okay. I, I don't like industrially grown corn and soybeans, regardless of whether animals or, or humans are eating them. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of innovation that still needs to happen in the plant world. Mm-hmm. I would love to see corn and soy grown more regeneratively too. Um, but we're kind of trying to pick our piece of the pie and like focus on it. And we're hoping that comes along at the same time.
1: And I think that's a huge point to make. It's no matter what you're doing, I mean, you could be, as far as I know, like Paul, you and your company, you're really kind of a, a leader in this industry as far as like doing things the right way. Yeah. And you can honestly say there's areas in which we're not perfect yet. And I think that's really healthy for everyone to listen to and kind of absorb. Like, we don't have to be perfect. We might not get there, but he's making real impact. You're making real impact.
0: Yeah. If you can't see where you're not there yet, yeah. like you're not going to grow. Yeah, you know? exactly. So nobody should really be able to say, oh, I have everything totally dialed in. Not when it yeah. comes to food. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. You don't have it all figured out yet, you know?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I know. It's it's tough. And even, you know, somebody who's saying, well, I only eat a plant-based diet. There's a lot of other things that go into how food is produce that doesn't just have to do with meat um totally. so circling back because I'm, I'm kind of excited about this idea of you know the differences between the way you produce um chickens you know for example and how they're produced in factory farms um you know from the health of the animal all the way to the health of the human you know what are some of those differentiating factors
0: yeah and i'd even circle this back to saying like most of our customers are already trying to buy like a free range mm-hmm. product or an organic product. It's rare that we find somebody that's just going to, you know, insert big box retail mm-hmm. Walmart, not picking on them, but Walmart yeah. and then all of a sudden they're going to go switch to pasture bird. Like these are typically people that are trying to get the best stuff that they can. And so uh-huh. you see something like free range. And you take that same 600 foot long barn with 40,000 birds and as long as you cut like a 2 foot door at the end of one end of the house doesn't matter if any birds ever go outside they actually rarely do technically that was access to the outdoors And so now you can call that free range. So that's
1: what that label means. That's all it means. Because, you know, I was, I think I told you, I was having this conversation with my mom on the way here and she's kind of going, well, what do all these terms mean? If we go into the grocery store, what does free range mean? What what does it mean when they say happy chickens Mm -hmm. on their labeling and their marketing? You know, and it's the same thing with, with natural versus organic. It's like, how do companies use these terms to influence our buying? And is it, you know, what's a better option for consumers?
0: Another one's like antibiotic free, you know, yeah. so antibiotic free. Actually an, an animal can have antibiotics their entire life and still be antibiotic free. How does that work? Because the residue of antibiotics in the meat at the time of slaughter is under the USDA threshold of antibiotic allowability and it's just it's just scam after scam there's like i play this of, game like you yeah. name the label i'll tell you the loophole on yeah it. It, <laughs> that actually sounds like an
1: awesome game but it
0: <laughs> it's a depressing game. kind of disturbing yeah it, <laughs> it happens on the animal and the plant side yeah I mean, there's 276 chemicals allowed on organic farming too like oh it's God. uh the food game is crazy right yeah. now so like it's really depressing to talk about until yeah. you go back like all right How do you solve for that? That's
1: kind of what I want to focus on because I feel like we all know there's, I mean, with our climate and our food system, there's so many things that are completely screwed up at this point. But, you know, we have the opportunity, especially with people like yourself, to start going, well, what can we do? You know, even if we're not going to be perfect, what can we do to get a little bit better in our choices when we start to
0: you know purchase and consume? To me, it's like a really simple, know your farmer's first name. You know what I'm saying? Like our grandparents actually probably had it figured out. Uh-huh. I think the food system's actually gotten way worse in the last 50 years. You know, 50 years ago, there really wasn't even supermarkets. Like, yeah. you'd go to your farms and you'd know where your stuff is coming from. And, of course, everything's not perfect, but, like, you still know who you're buying from. And when the farmer has to shake your hand and sell you this product, it's a whole new onus on us. Completely. Too, you know. Gotta I'm going to go out and put eye. my face on. <laughs> I'm not going to feed you something. I wouldn't feed my own kids yeah. kind of thing. So I think just knowing your farmer, even though yeah. it sounds cliche, um, one cool thing is it's never been easier than now with the yeah. advent of Instagram with social media like You don't necessarily have to go out to the farm and walk around. Like, you can get to know these people if we're being transparent. Like, we can get to know us really easily through Mm -hmm. social media now. And, uh, of course, farm tours are amazing. And, like, some great places like specialty produce, they'll actually name the farms where they're getting stuff from that's epic. Like, that's where we need to get back to on both on plant and animal side. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and I believe a lot of restaurants too, because the first time we spoke, it was more about knowing your farmer from a restaurateur um, perspective and, you know, the opportunity. And, and I believe um, when we spoke Because one thing that always comes to my mind, and this is kind of tricky, like, okay, it's great for somebody who's upper middle class, has the time and the resources to go to farms and go to um, go to farmers markets and really start to dig in and learn about their food. But what about the single mom with, you know, three kids who's just trying to put food on the plate and feeling maybe that she's being overlooked by the opportunity, you know, not having the opportunity to feed this way? So. What can we do? I know you told me a little bit about starting to distribute on a larger scale. And, you know, that's something we touched on before. How is this food, you know, how can we make this more accessible or how can we access it if we're not just able to wander down to the farmer's market?
0: Yeah, it's one of the things that, like, I've struggled with with this whole business is sometimes it feels like we're selling food for rich people. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. Like, I literally despise that part of it. That's not what I got into this for. Like, that really, like, deeply bothers me. First answer – Farm tours are usually free. Yeah. So, like, that's one cool area where even if you can't necessarily afford it for every meal of every day, like, at least start with knowing what you're buying. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's kind of depressing sometimes when you can't afford what you want. Um, but at least education's like, the first step, you know. After that, there really is an onus, like, on farmers to scale up regenerative operations mm-hmm. so that other people can't afford it. I don't think it will ever be the cheapest food in the world. But like it can't be four times as much, you know, like it's too much for people. And even for chefs, I talk to chefs all the time. They're like, dude, I would love to use that product, but it's just too expensive. Like we can't do it right now, you know? And then also just access, like where's it available at, you know, it, if we're always just going to be, you have to drive all the way out to the farm to pick it up that's going to really prohibit a lot of people from being able to have it so the convenience factor like working out we've been re- working really hard on home delivery and like mm-hmm. getting into some local grocery stores and stuff where people can easily go get the product like that's really on the farmers too i think
1: yeah completely and i remember you saying that too about this idea that you know you know from the chef's perspective They might say that and it might be true. And so as a farmer, instead of just saying, well, they have to come to my farm and that's the way it is, you can actually start to try to meet them halfway. And you've done that a little bit through your distribution.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've been working really hard on fresh distribution, like getting the product out to Mm -hmm. chefs. So we have good distribution from like the Bay Area pretty much down to San Diego now. And that's it's a ton of work. Like it's hard to figure it out. But honestly, there's a little bit of like a feeling within the farming community that uh, we aren't the ones that need to innovate. Like, the customer yeah. is the one that needs to figure out how to do this. And I dis- I disagree with that. Yeah, like, and let's I meet in the middle that's somewhere. That's
1: tough. Exactly. And, and, you tough. know, ideally it would be another kind of a, a distribution or an infrastructure that was put in place by the distributor. And, you know, there could be a, a great solution. But if that's too expensive for you or too expensive for the consumer, I think there, there needs to be kind of that, that meeting in the middle. And then also, you know, you're talking about trying to get that price point down, which, of course, when anything new comes on the market, it's like I think of California coffee and how much that costs right now to get one cup of coffee but eventually with economies of scale as these things start to take off we'll be able to lower the prices and you know the hope is that that will take place with the regenerative as well but then the idea of you know do we need to eat as much meat as we're eating or can we eat better meat but just a little bit less of it and is that a solution for how to um how to really mitigate that additional cost
0: yeah so I go back and forth on this sometimes. Yeah. No, like, I'd love honestly, to hear Honestly, like thoughts, I think Caesar. about it a lot. So the eat less meat movement, I'm just like – it's just like eat better food, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if it's less meat or if it's better meat or if it's like – I don't want you to eat less meat and then go eat more factory farm kale either, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like can we just think about regenerative systems and like yeah. promote those and try to try to have more of that, you know? Yeah. Um I think meat can, can be great and it can be awful, and I think plants are the same way. So, like, I I go back and forth on that one all the time. I don't know if it's necessarily eat less meat and the world becomes a better place because a lot of vegetables are grown horribly and yeah. produce is grown horribly. And not just environmentally or for animals, um, but for worker conditions, too. Like, let's bring in the humans back into this, Completely. too. So. <clears throat> What you said, going back to like somebody that's, you know, lower class or like not able to afford this, it's the same answer for everybody. Like, we're all just going to do our best. And not turn blinders on. Like, let's get educated and not just stick with whatever our worldview is. Like, let's be open to other things, but let's try to absorb everything, you know.
1: Exactly. And focus on education, too. And I think that's one of the main reasons I love working with Very Good Food so much is that our goal is to do that outreach so more people can understand, you know, well, we can grow food on our patios and we can go to the farmer's market or get this farm tour or talk to our farmer and start to understand and, and raise our kids in a way that, you know, this next generation has this idea that food actually comes from the ground and comes from an animal and doesn't come from a big box store and you know in styrofoam because my growing up that's where meat came from to me that was my understanding it was you know it came in a styrofoam with some plastic on it and then you start to kind of dig in and go no i i really want kids to know that this is coming from the ground and this is coming from the land and and so that idea that they can go to those farm tours i think is really really meaningful too
0: not only that, so like I always say, the most valuable vote that you have in the entire world is like your dollar, Absolutely. it's not necessarily the ballot box, you know. Yeah. like you could get a little bit done there, but yeah, really, a bit, but- <laughs> never underestimate like the power of consumer pressure
1: completely and like
0: yeah. asking for what you want. And mm-hmm. uh, honestly, I- I've gone all the way from like thinking big ag was the worst demonic ever to now really thinking like change is gonna have to kind of come from them, yeah. Like that's actually, I've gone all the way there on the pendulum swing, so like. All that Big Ag does, I don't think they're inherently evil or they're bad people or any of that. I think they're just responding to consumer demand for cheap food. Mm -hmm. And if the consumer demand shifts to, no, we want good food, we want better food, I think that they'll change. Like Mm -hmm. I honestly do. Maybe they'll throw some fancy marketing labels on there or something Mm -hmm. too. But I legitimately think that like after talking to some of these guys, they're just responding to consumer demand. So like if we keep the pressure up and explain and educate them that, no, this is the kind of food we want, like I think you'll see a legit shift.
1: That would be the hope because that does make a lot of sense that we can start to kind of – there's this feeling as individuals. I think like you said, we go to the ballot box. We're not sure how much we can really change. But by creating this increased demand for a product that's better for us, for our planet, for our bodies, and for our kids, we can really start to make you know some kind of hopefully mean, meaningful shift.
0: Yeah, and let's be realistic about what we're trying to. Yeah. If we're talking about being regenerative like in our lives. Yeah. Let's leave this a little better than what we found it. That's regenerative. Like maybe we don't get whole system food reform and it's like this amazing thing we hand on to our kids. But like did we degenerate the food system or did we regenerate it a little bit? Like that's awesome if we can make it a little better.
1: I've heard that so much lately. It feels like everywhere I go, I hear somebody saying, let's leave it a little better than we found it. And my dad always used to say that when we'd go camping. And I loved it. (laughs) Did Your parents Uh do. And we'd be picking up trash. And we're like, dad, we didn't leave this trash. And he's like, we're going to leave this better than we found it. And I love that idea. And just this whole, you know, like when you say regenerative, to me, that just sounds like, like this... Like putting forth some effort to just make things a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know, and from the perspective of, OK, if we're not going to dig down into the the science of everything, but just say, like, let's just try to make the choices we can as individuals when we're buying, when we're consuming, when we're promoting something like let's do it in a way that leaves it a little bit better than we found it. Well,
0: and just like don't underestimate the power of like one You know, pasture-raised chicken a week. Yeah. You know? Like, okay, it doesn't feel like you're doing a lot or whatever. Like, you're struggling just to get by. But if you literally make that little sacrifice, and I mean, it doesn't feel like a lot, one person. Imagine if, like, a million people do that. That's a big difference all of a sudden, you know? Completely. And, like, it will wake up these big companies and they'll start to change.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And so I have to ask you now a, a couple of questions, you know, the, the things my mom really wanted to know on the way over I love here. It. I love it. <laughs> okay. And they, you know, there might actually be questions that really kind of lead us in a direction that's um helpful. But okay, so um what do you do with all the chicken poop?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love that question. I love that question. <laughs> so it's actually a serious problem in the mm-hmm. big farms, right? Okay. So yeah. poop for I love talking about poop. Like, that's okay. my thing. Right? I feel
1: like farmers do, and now I kind of do too, so go with that. Get it. into it. You got
0: chickens now. You got to yeah, be in the poop, chickens. you know? Yeah, love For thousands of years, go back to the bison, like, the uh-huh. poop has been the greatest asset for yeah. soil. So now, you go into the American Midwest, and it's like that black, rich soil, uh-huh. you know? That didn't just appear. Like, that was from animals grazing for millions of years, like, building that soil organic matter, yeah. you know? Okay, so now, though, in the last 50 years, we started doing this confinement animal production, like feedlots and yeah. CAFOs poop all of a sudden goes from being one of the greatest assets in the world to, like, a massive liability, Yeah. antibiotic, drug-infested manure.
1: Running off. What are you going to do it? With yeah, it? exactly. Like, you see
0: these lagoons. You see these, like, streams, algae blooms, fish kills. A big rain happens, and this nasty manure flows into a waterway, oh, yeah. and it destroys so much habitat, you know? Um, so it's really become, like, this massive liability. But if we, again, we're, we're not trying to do anything new. We're just taking it back Completely. and trying to do biomimicry. That's a great term. So when the, when the animals are living on the pasture, there's no floor. Mm-hmm. They poop directly onto the field. They get moved to the next spot the next day. I'm not like going out there with a shovel and trying <laughs> to pick it chicken. up. Yeah. It went exactly where it belongs, yeah. right on yeah. the soil to basically go into the ground and build a better soil health for the next time. So I don't have to do anything with the chicken poop. Just, yeah, for a backyard is. farmer, though. Yeah. Maybe you don't have the ability to move them every day to a new spot or something like Uh that. I highly recommend like get some wood chips down, mix it in, carbonize it, and Mm -hmm. then use that to fertilize your garden. It's better than anything you're going to find at Home Depot or anywhere else. Like it's great, it's great fertilizer. You know,
1: that's awesome. That's and do you have any other recommendations just off the cuff for home farmers who might want to integrate chickens into their life?
0: Do it. Do it. Step one. Like figure out how to do it. Uh, let's see. There was an ad from 1918. The USDA put it out. Uh-huh. It was during wartime and stuff, like World War I, and it uh-huh. said basically every person in the U.S. should like own enough chickens to supply their own eggs mm-hmm. to contribute to a bumper crop. And it's the coolest – I don't know if you've experienced this yet, but basically all your food waste – can go back to those birds oh, yeah. who generate the eggs and the manure for your garden to mm-hmm. grow the next. Like that's the definition of regenerative, you know. Yeah. So you completely. don't need to throw away or necessarily. You can compost still, but mm-hmm. like you don't need to throw away food anymore. Orange peels, lemon rind, you know, yeah. anything. Like the chickens will devour it. And it's I the didn't best.
1: realize that that was one thing because we have our compost at home, and then I have my giant, giant tortoise. Like he's, you know. Oh, cool. Um, weighs probably a hundred and some pounds yeah. now at least he's a big guy so he eats most of our green scraps you know a lot of um stuff but we didn't really have anywhere to put like my husband's an omnivore and he'd have leftovers from dinner or something yep. you know that we didn't really know what to do with or scraps or you know things that i wasn't sure for. cuttings like, or whatever yeah anything yeah. Yeah. yeah and so this idea that i could just feed him into the chickens and david has this thing my husband where he goes down in the morning and he gives him some scraps and he takes his egg we're only getting one egg for four chickens now so we're, we're working on it okay. just get more chickens. <laughs> but he takes his yeah exactly you <laughs> Takes his egg and he's so pleased with that and he thanks him for his egg and it's like this great little relationship you know
0: you'll never look at an egg the same way again like you'll also never look at a chicken breast the same way again like when you have that real relationship and that's what we've had for like thousands of years if we're if we're meat eaters like we've had that relationship so what freaks me out now is you walk into a grocery store even some great grocery stores and it's just cellophane wrapper after cellophane. it's really hard to now reassociate that with a living breathing animal at one point in time That's really what allows factory farming to dominate is like that dissociation from agriculture. So that's why I think backyard chickens are killer. Yeah. It really like gives you a whole new respect and you will not look at animals the same way again after kind of seeing that every day.
1: Well, and I think that's hugely important whether or not you're a plant-based human or you're an omnivore, however you want to prepare, you know, conduct your diet. Just the idea of really respecting your food enough to either look it in the eye or just be aware that it, you know, that it was a living, breathing creature and it was part of a, a larger system. Sure. And, you know, take away that kind of feeling of, you know, I don't want to get into the human supremacy component, but the Honestly, idea though, that yeah. Yeah, the, the we're working with this natural system and the idea that we can reintegrate food into our communities in a way that lets us respect that food keeps us maybe from wasting so much of it because we've all heard the numbers about how much food waste occurs. And if we really have love and respect for that food, then we're not going to be so prone to wasting it, yep. you know
0: and when and, you grow that beautiful rainbow chard in your backyard uh, garden you're not probably going to throw it away no like, not you're gonna at eat all. It, it's not going to be food waste you know so it yeah and totally. that's
1: one thing i you know luke girling from cyclops farms up the street from us it's like i know him i know his wife his kids you know i know about their chickens and their pigs and everything else and the fact that he grows this food like there is no way in heck i'm not going to do something good with that food totally. once i buy it something. from him yeah. yeah i know how hard they work to produce it so. that's why
0: my next business is every farmers market should have its own Pig farm and chicken farm.
1: That's interesting. There's so
0: much food waste. Like, yeah. I don't know if you've been to Santa Monica Farmer's Market. No, I've it's seen in, pictures, There's probably a truckload but... of food waste every day. Yeah. I'm... Like, it's out of control, and it just goes in the trash, you know? So at least compost it if nothing else. Yeah, I think it'd be rad to have like an animal farm that's associated with it that basically cycles it all back.
1: Yeah, or find some kind of distribution system to be able to get it out to the animal refuges too if they're already existing. That'd be rad. Yeah, Yeah. we um, at my restaurants for a while we were having a really hard time in getting a compost solution in place. Just there wasn't any infrastructure for it in the city, and so for a while, we ended up taking one of the girls who works with us, the one who gave us our chickens. Um, She had pigs, so all of our food scraps from the restaurant were going out to the pigs. And it was this funny joke, like, oh, can they handle the wasabi, you know, because it's a sushi (laughs) bar. (laughs) We'd be looking in the bucket, like, what does dinner look like, or breakfast (laughs) tomorrow look like for these pigs? But it was really cool. It was, you know, for our guests to understand that we were doing that, for our staff to know that that food wasn't just going to go into the landfill and, you know, create methane emissions. It was going to be somebody's dinner. That was really cool. And, you know, now we have a compost System, but I still I kind of miss feeding the pigs. Like I like that part of it.
0: Yeah, that's the next step after backyard chickens. It becomes yeah. the backyard pig. I'm actually supposed to bring Brian Malarkey a pig here pretty soon. He wants a couple as a back pet. Here. Yeah. Oh,
1: that's awesome. See, David, did you hear that? I've been bugging my husband for quite a while now to let me have a pig, but we have an HOA, so we're kind of like walking yeah, the line <laughs> for what what we can get away with at this point. No, that's so awesome. So then, I mean, I'm trying to keep these little episodes to about half an hour, just so we can keep it really fresh and easy to easy to listen to, but just wrapping up, is there anything else that you feel like you really want people to know about living this kind of more regenerative, um, supporting farmers like yourself who are really trying to do things the right way?
0: Yeah, I mean we're just one of like a thousand. There's yeah. literally about 900 people doing pasture-raised poultry the way that we do yeah. it. So like I always say we're just a small part of a massive like grassroots movement, you know. Yeah. So if you are in an area that's not San Diego or if you want to check out somebody else, like yeah. APA. APA is like the national okay. group. It's A P P. <laughs>
1: How many fees are we gonna throw Three in there? P's. <laughs> okay.
0: Maybe you could put it in the notes. Okay. Yeah. Appa.org has like a find a farmer, and you can go on and find somebody local to you. I'm a huge proponent of local food when it's available. Although I, I also say buy, you know, buy quality first, then worry mm-hmm. about local second. Okay. If it's not available to you super locally, I'd say buy quality mm-hmm. instead. And by
1: quality, you mean regeneratively grown. In yeah, a way I pasture raised supports- meats and stuff yeah, like that. Got yeah, it.
0: exactly. And then I would also just say like. If this is the first time you've heard about regenerative, there's a lot of awesome resources. Joel Salatin's one of my favorite. Alan Savory's really, mm-hmm. really cool. On the plant side, uh, Gabe Brown's doing some amazing work with like large scale cereal grains, incorporating awesome. livestock. But really, incorporating it for the purpose of fertilization and land management.
1: You say, Gabe Brown.
0: Gabe Brown, I yeah, read really, like that really one. cool. And then, awesome. of course, like our buddies at Kiss the Ground, mm-hmm. they're, they're doing great work in this. And area, And so too.
1: accessible too. I love the Kiss the Ground videos for because sure. it's just so easy to understand. They break it down so simply. Definitely awesome. That's so great. Okay, I have to just one thing keeps popping into my mind. I don't know if it was Joel Salatin, but the idea that. W- they had a barn and they had the cows in the barn with the hay and they just kept adding more hay and then they put corn in it and it fermented and then they let the pigs root in it and turn up it turn it all up. Was that Salatin? Do you know that story?
0: I think he does something like that. I think yeah. that's called Korean Natural Farming though. Okay, okay. Yeah. That,
1: that to me was just the coolest story too. So then maybe that'll be for another episode. <laughs> we don't
0: do that. So like we're lucky to be here in Southern California. Uh-huh. We don't need to use a barn. Exactly. Like it's beautiful weather 12 yeah. months out of the year for chickens that can live yeah. outside. You know, but in Virginia uh-huh. in the middle of winter, like, Okay. Yeah, figure out some way to do it awesome inside of a Okay, ball.
1: sorry, I just kept thinking about that. I was like, I just love the idea. Just looking for solutions and kind of more natural systems, leading back to that biomimicry. Sure. But awesome. Well, thank you so much yeah, for sitting for down and talking me. about all of this with us. And thank you to all who listened today. This is very good talk.